to chapter 4 today and going to be finishing out our series, First Things First. We've been looking all summer at how to put the Lord first in all these different areas and aspects of our lives. And today he's going to kind of just bring it all to a, a close here. He's going to kind of put a summary on it, a bow on the end of it here, and uh, point us back to himself uh, in this message called Behold. Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> so, you know, final words are usually a pretty big deal. Right? Like, think about like the final words the coach says to the team before they charge out for the championship game. Right? Like everybody's like listening very intently. Or those last words that mom and dad say to their child before they leave them at the dormitory and drive away to go back home. Right? Or those final words that that loved one said to us right before they passed. Final words are important, right? They're, they're meant to, to help us and to guide us and to stick with us for whatever's coming next, whatever's ahead of us. And as you probably already know, if you've been with us this summer, Malachi, the whole book of Malachi is God's final words to Israel before he goes into 400 years of silence. He stops talking for 400 years before Jesus comes, and these are the final words he gives to Israel before that new season. And since we're in the final chapter of Malachi, this is like God's final, final words to Israel this morning, right? This is the last thing that is going to be ringing in their ears as he pushes them forward into this next season where he's going to be more distant or absent in a way. He gives them these words to carry them, to lead them, and to give them hope for what's to come. And here's what I believe God is saying in his final words in this chapter. Behold, I am with you. Behold, I am with you. That's what he wants to reassure them of. That's what he wants to reassure us of this morning in this final chapter. So let's go ahead and look at verse 1. Malachi 4 verse 1 says this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Point number one this morning is this, look up and I will save you. God is reminding them, he's reassuring them once again, look up, look up to me and I will save you. But it starts with this word, behold, and that's why I use that for the sermon title today. That kind of starts this whole section, behold. We don't actually use that word a lot anymore today, uh, but it means like, hey, attention. Like, hey, up here, everybody look, behold, right? Something big is about to happen. Something is coming, and you need to pay attention. And he says, behold, the day is coming. Now, the day is short, therefore, the great day of the Lord, or as we would call it today, usually judgment day. It's like, behold, judgment day is coming, and this is something that Israelites would have known well. They would have known exactly what day he was talking about. 
They had heard it many times through the scriptures and many times from the other prophets. They do, Malachi's even referenced, referenced it in his own book here. And he's just saying, they're like, hey, don't blow this off. Don't let this just be some old hat thing that you forget about. The day is coming, and it's coming in hot. Like literally. He said it's burning like an oven. That the day is coming, burning with the fire of God's wrath and the fire of God's justice on sin. This judgment that you've been asking about, if you've been with us through the book of Malachi, remember they keep asking, like, God, where are you? Why aren't you dealing with this? Why aren't you dealing with that? This judgment you've been asking about, it's coming. Don't you worry. He says, and the arrogant will be stubble, and they will be set ablaze. Now, the title arrogant there points back, it's callback actually to chapter 3 that we studied last week. And we said that the arrogant are those who have rejected God. Those who refuse to worship him, who refuse to acknowledge that he is God. They're like, I don't need him, I got this, I'm in charge. And their arrogant pride has led them to completely and utterly reject the Lord. And he says, they will be cut down like brush, like stubble, and set ablaze like the brush pile in the fall bonfire that we love so much in Missouri. They're going to be burned up like that until there is no root or branch left. They will be completely consumed by God's wrath. And the reason this is coming is because they had their chance to repent and they refused to do so. Their final rejection of the Lord is going to lead to their final destruction on the day of the Lord. And he's ushering them this warning and then he says this. Look at the very next word. Look at your scriptures. What's the very next word? But. I love to see that word but in the Bible because it always points us to hope. That this is a reality. This is coming for those who reject the Lord, but there is another option. But there is another path. There is another road that you can take here. That doesn't have to be you. He says, but you who fear my name, we also talked about that last week when he talked about those who fear my name are those who, who stand in awe of who God is. Who honor him and respect him and worship him and love him. Those who fear my name, who understand that I am worthy. Those who put their faith in me, he says, for you, the son of righteousness shall rise. Not a burning oven, but the son of righteousness now that phrase there, son of righteousness, is, pro, is prophetic imagery here that he's using. At the very beginning of Malachi, if you were here for that, I talked about that in the Bible, prophecy has two main aspects to it. One is foretelling, and one is foretelling, right? Foretelling is saying, hey, this is what's wrong, and you need to fix it. That's been the majority of the book of Malachi, right? He's been like, hey, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong. Get this fixed. But there's another aspect of prophecy where he it's foretelling of the future, what's going to come next. 
And this is a foretelling section where he's pointing to, hey, the day of judgment is coming, and let me tell you what's coming next. And so the people, when they heard this, they would have been like, okay, son of righteousness, that sounds pretty good. I'm on on board for that. What does that mean? (laughs) Right? Like, they didn't know. They didn't have a decoder ring. Like, they... What does son of righteousness even mean? And we don't know. Maybe you read that and you're like, I I don't, okay, what is that? That sounds great, but what is that? Thankfully, God doesn't leave us in the dark. I absolutely love it when the Bible explains the Bible. Like he gives us the answer in his word. We don't have to guess. We don't have to try to figure it out for ourselves. It's right there. When we get to the New Testament in the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we have this guy named Zechariah. He's a priest, and he uh, has no children, but he finds out he's going to have a son named John the Baptist, and God comes and, and gives him this great news, and when the baby comes, he has this prophecy. God uses Zechariah to give this prophecy about John and what's coming after John. And in verse 78, chapter 1, verse 78, 79, he says this, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us, from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So right here, God, through Zechariah, is confirming that the coming Messiah that they've been waiting for, the the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, is the Son of Righteousness that Malachi was talking about. Right? This is the one who is coming for those who have feared the Lord. Furthermore, Jesus says it about himself later on in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says again, Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is the son of righteousness. That is promised that he's going to come for all those who fear the Lord. But look what he says next about the son of righteousness. He says, it shall rise with healing in its wings. And in Christ, we actually have a dual fulfillment of this prophecy. And here's what I mean by that. First, he came to earth, and through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death on the cross, and through his resurrection from the dead, he rose to bring all types of healing to those who would believe in him. Right? Physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing, mental healing, all of that is from the Lord. Jesus Christ brings all that, and when we put our faith in him, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, and he starts healing us from the inside out. But only in part. Right? If you have faith in Jesus, hopefully you've experienced some of that healing, but there's still some parts of us, and there's still some parts of this world that are broken by sin. And we still feel the pain of it, and we still feel the death, and we still feel all the things that are still here. So yes, he has fulfilled it in part, but one day he's coming back again, and when he returns and set up his, sets up his heavenly kingdom, everything will be healed completely and eternally by the Son of Righteousness. He has already started the work, but he has not yet finished the work. But the Son of Righteousness will do it. He will rise again with healing in his wings. And as a result, those who are healed through our faith in Jesus, he says, will leap like calves from the stall. 
Now, that might be lost on some of us city folk, okay? But if you've ever seen cattle, especially young cattle, trapped up in a small stall or in a trailer for any amount of time, when they open that door, man, they go jumping out, and they're all over the place, and they're, like, they're so excited, they're filled with the joy of being free. That's the picture for us. That when Christ comes and he sets us free from sin and death and he frees us from the flesh, that we have so much joy that we are leaping and we are following him with this great exuberance. And in leaping for joy, he says, we will also tread down the ashes of the wicked. Remember, this is judgment day is the picture here, right? Those who have been burnt up because of their rebellion against God. He said, you're going to be jumping over their ashes. And not in a vindictive way. Not in a like, yeah, that serves you right. You got what you, you know, like, we all deserve that. Amen? We all deserve that. But by God's grace, we have something else. And so that jumping and that treading is not out of, out of a, uh, a heart of, of meanness towards those who are lost, but rather out of a heart of gratefulness to our Lord and to our Savior who has saved us from that same fate. That we now are fully healed in the presence of Jesus. And right in the middle of this kind of alarming prophecy from God at the end of Malachi, there's actually still a beautiful picture of God's grace. First, we see it in the fact that he says this day this day of judgment, it's coming, but it's not here yet, right? It is coming, but I'm giving you some warning. I'm giving you some time to get on the right path. Like, listen, God is so patient with us in our sin and in his grace. He is a long-suffering God, and he gives us opportunity to repent and to be saved and to put our faith in him. He says it's coming, but it's not here yet. You still have time. And then secondly, we see it in the way that his voice changes in this warning. It's very subtle. But when he's talking about the arrogant, the wicked who are going to be burned up, he's talking in the third person. right? He's talking about this group, and this is going to be their fate, and that's just what's going to happen. He's just kind of laying out the facts of it. But then when he switches to talk to those who fear the Lord, he switches to the second person. He says, no, no, you. But you who fear my name, you will be saved by the Son of Righteousness. And not only is he declaring that, he's also almost calling us to that. Like, you don't have to take that other path. This can be your future to put your faith in me, to fear me, and you will be saved and healed by the Son of Righteousness. He's inviting us into it in the midst of the prophecy. And then thirdly, we see the entire gospel encapsulated in just that one little word, but. But there is hope. That yes, you are sinners, and you deserve the same verdict as the first group. You deserve hell and wrath and punishment. You deserve all of that for your sin, and yet I love you so much that I sent my son to die for you. To stand on the cross and to take your sin and your guilt upon himself and, and he paid that price for our sin, and he was buried, and then he rose again on the third day. God's saying, I, I did this for you. Will you believe? Will you fear my name? 
Will you repent and turn to me? Will you look up? Will you look up at the Son of Righteousness as he rises before you and put your faith in him alone? Look up and I will save you. God's reminding them, I'm here. I'm right here. I'm always here. Just look up. Just look up. One night there was a huge storm that swept across the countryside and in the process it it washed out this bridge on this little country road. Shortly after that a man was driving and came around the bend and as his headlights made the turn he saw that the bridge was out and he slammed on his brakes and kind of skidded towards the cliffside coming just short of going over the edge. And relieved he kind of gets his car and manages to get his car over to the side of the road and he gets out and he goes and he looks over the cliffside and sees like a 30-foot drop into this swelling river and knew that if, if he would not have stopped, if he would not have seen that the bridge was out, he would have plummeted to certain death. About that time, he hears the sound, the familiar sound of another vehicle approaching, coming around the same bend. And he goes and he stands in the middle of the road And he starts yelling and screaming, stop, stop, don't go any further, stop. But as the car comes around the edge of the bend, the driver doesn't see him. He doesn't see the bridge. He's looking down at his phone and he doesn't see what's coming. And the man keeps screaming, stop, stop, stop. But the driver doesn't look up. At the last minute, the man dives out of the way, and the car goes over the cliff and down into the river. And the man is heartbroken that he couldn't save this other driver, that he couldn't save this other person. He was trying, he was giving the invitation, he was, but they wouldn't look up. The Lord is right there in front of you and he's saying stop stop don't go down this path anymore this is not the answer this is headed to certain death just look up and I will save you that's his call to the Israelites that's his call to us today salvation only comes through Jesus Christ but we have to look up God is with us. He is with us and he will save us if we only look up to him. That's the first thing that he reminds them of in this final chapter. He goes on then in verse 4. And he says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So point number two is that remember, and I will guide you. Remember, and I will guide you. The word remember there is, it's an active rather than a passive verb, right? Like he's, he's exhorting them, he's commanding them, like don't just recall some things, but remember them, recall them, and then also do them. Do what I've told you to do. Remember it and do it and keep doing it and don't stop. Keep remembering and keep going. And then notice he says, remember the law of Moses. Now, 
the law of Moses there, it doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments, right? Some people are like, yeah, that, that was Moses' thing, right? You remember, like, the video and the guy with the tablets and not just that, okay? It's not just the law of Israel. The law of Moses usually includes the entire Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, okay? Sometimes it even means all of the Old Testament Jewish scriptures in general. And so God's pointing them back to his word. He's saying, hey, remember my word that I've given to you. And he's summarizing in chapter 4 here basically what he's been saying throughout the entire book of Malachi, hasn't he? Right? Over and over again, he just keeps pointing them back to like, hey, I told you to do this, and you're not doing it. He's reminding them of his word. He's reminding them to keep steadfast faith in him and no other gods. He's reminding them to give heart-level, heartfelt worship to him and not just go through the motions. He's reminding them to pursue faithful relationships as he has been faithful to them. He's reminding them to give generously and faithfully as he provides for them. He's reminding them to practice godly justice in the land. He's reminding them of all these things from his word. And he's saying, if you will just remember and follow my word, I will be with you. You see, friends, we have to, we, we cannot forget, I think sometimes we take for granted so easily God's word, the Bible, in our culture because it's so readily available to us. It's so, but God's word is a gift. God's word is a powerful gift to us where he has revealed himself and he's revealed his will so that we can follow him and be one with him. It's a, it's a gift to help us in our lives. Psalm 119, 11 says, I have stored up my word, your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. God's word is a help to keep us from continuing to walk in sin and to correct our hearts and to bring us back to who he is. God's word is a gift to teach us. Psalm 119 verse 130 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. That it teaches us things that we don't know or we wouldn't see otherwise because we're not getting it from anywhere else. He teaches us the truth that doesn't come from other sources in our culture. God's word is a gift to guide us. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It doesn't just tell me what I need to know. It tells me how I need to go. How I need to walk. How I need to apply it to my life. Chris just mentioned we're starting small groups up here again in a couple weeks, getting them rolling. Our small group ministry is all about helping you apply God's word to your life. It's not just filling your head with more knowledge and more knowledge and more knowledge. That doesn't help anyone. It's knowing God's word and then doing God's word. That's what matters. And if you're not in a small group, man, sign up, get in a small group. God's word is a gift to us in all of these ways. And it was a gift to Israel, but we even have it better than they did because not only do we have God's word as a gift, we also have the gift of his Holy Spirit, right? Living inside of us. And his whole job is to teach us and to remind us of God's word so that we can walk in it. Listen to this, John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance... All that I have said to you. We have an extra dose of, of the Lord living in us to help us remember God's word. 
and follow it. John 16, 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He leads us to follow and remember God's word. So in these two elements, God is with us. He is first, he's with us in his word. As we read it, as we study it, he reveals himself to us and he is with us. And secondly, he is with us through the Holy Spirit, residing in us 24-7, teaching us to follow him. And in both of these ways, he's telling us, hey, you never have to be alone. No matter what you feel, no matter what circumstances you're walking through, no matter who's left you or abandoned you or hurt you or betrayed you, you don't have to be alone. I am with you. Through the word, through the spirit, I am with you. Most of us have had to walk through the painful experience of losing a loved one. Some of us actually very recently and it's, it's hard when they pass because you don't get to see them anymore. You don't get to hear them anymore. You don't get to experience life with them anymore. And I've been around funerals enough to, to hear oftentimes what people will say is, I know they're gone, but, but, but they'll always be with you. And that's kind of true, right? Can we just be honest this morning? It's, it's, it's kind of true. Like, They'll never physically be with us again. Like, like we don't get to hear their voice. We don't get to, that's not going to happen. But the memory of them gets to be with us. We get to remember who they were. We get to remember what they did. We get to remember what they said to us. And those memories allow us to move forward and live in a way that honors them and listens to them and follows their example or whatever it is that they've imparted to you through their life. It comes through the memory Same thing, is what, same thing that God is saying here. God's telling his people, remember me. Even when I'm absent from you, or at least you feel like I'm absent from you, even when I'm not speaking, even when I'm not moving in this exact moment of your life, remember who I am, remember my words to you, and I will be with you in that. It's not bad for us to have supernatural experiences with the Lord. Those are sweet times where God comes and does a special thing and the Spirit moves. And man, love that. But that's not every day for the believer. Every day is us walking in the world with the Lord by remembering who He is in His Word. He's teaching us, he's guiding us, he's helping us as we remember, as we walk in the Spirit, just like those memories of past loved ones or mentors who have spoken into our lives. So God is with us when we remember and follow his word. That's the second reassurance that he gives to us in this passage. Look up and I will save you. Remember and I will guide you. I will be with you. And then there's one more. Look at verse 5. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children 
and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Last point is this, turn and I will change you. Turn and I will change you. He starts off with this, he says, I will send you Elijah. Now, that name for them would have like sent off some, some signals in their brain, okay? Elijah was the, the number one prophet for the Israelites. He was the top guy, right? Like he was the one who set the bar for all the other prophets. And, and sometimes his name is actually used to even symbolize all of the prophets, like, like not just Elijah, but all the prophets. And, but in this particular phrase, when he says, I will send you Elijah, that might have like kind of given them a different picture, right? Because if you know the story of Elijah, at the end of his life, he didn't actually die. He's one of only two men in Scripture who didn't die. It says in, um, do I have that in here? Yeah, 2 Kings 2.11, is that as they were still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses and fire separated the two of them. That's Elijah and Elisha. And then Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So God didn't kill him. He just took him. Like, all right, you're, you're done. Come on. And just lifted him up, right? And so when they hear, like, hey, I'm going to send you Elijah, like, oh, he's coming back? Like, he never died, so he's still up there somewhere. Like, like he's coming back, and he's going to, like, do, like, a reunion tour? Like, we're doing this, right? Like, they, were, they would probably be, like, super excited by that because Elijah was the guy. But that's not actually what God was saying here. Again, God uses his word to interpret his word. And we see the explanation of this prophecy in the New Testament once again. One day Jesus was talking about John the Baptist who came before him in ministry, and he said this in Matthew eleven ten. He said, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So it's the same language of Malachi, right? I'm going to send a messenger ahead of you. Likewise, back in Zechariah's prophecy, his dad, John the Baptist's dad, when he prophesied, I'm sorry, when the angel, no, no, when Zechariah prophesied after he was born, in verse 76, it says, And you, child, talking about John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And so, in this sense, God is saying, hey, these scriptures that we see here in Malachi are actually predicting the person and the ministry of John the Baptist who's going to come in the spirit of Elijah and prepare the people as a messenger before that great day of judgment comes and turn their hearts back to the Lord. He would be a forerunner for Jesus and for the judgment that was coming. And in doing so, God is giving his people one last chance to be saved, to turn to him. Before judgment comes. Again, we see his grace just all over this passage. They didn't listen to any of the other prophets. So I'm going to send you one more. One more chance. And he says, this man, this Elijah will come and he will turn hearts. The word turn there literally just means repent. Right? It's the same word we use for repent, to that he will repent hearts, which is exactly what his message was all about. If you've read about John the Baptist in the Gospels, he went around all over the place, and all he did was preach the same sermon everywhere he went. He had one sermon, repent, 
for the kingdom of, hand, kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Jesus is coming. Repent, repent. That's all he said. Calling the people back to the Lord. And he knew that salvation and judgment are coming. And he's saying, get ready. Change your heart. Turn towards the Lord. Be saved. Repent. And he says here in Malachi, he will turn the hearts of the father to their fathers to their children and to the hearts of their children to their fathers. And once again, we see that statement. It's kind of a cryptic statement, but we see it explained in the New Testament where before John the Baptist is born, God sends an angel to Zechariah to explain to him, hey, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have a son. And in that explanation, here's what the angel says. Luke 1, 16, 17 says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel, talking about John the Baptist, to the Lord their God. Do you see the change there? Children to the Lord rather than to fathers. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So there's the reference to Malachi. And to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So there's several elements here where he's interpreting what he said in Malachi. And first is that he's going to turn the children of Israel to their father who is the Lord. That that's his whole job is to turn people back to God the Father. And then he says he will turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So the children here represent those who are disobedient to God and who are rejecting God. And the fathers represent those who are speaking and preaching the truth of God. And that, that through John the Baptist's call to repent, they're going to be turned from their sin back to the Lord. To faith in God. To faith in his word. And he will make them ready for the Lord's return. The other piece of that language, though, the father-child language, I think it's more than just that. It also shows how the gospel, how this turning back to the Lord is going to impact generations. It's going to impact families. It's going to impact all these relationships that we're in on this earth. And that's, if, if you've been in the gospel for any length of time, I think you've already experienced that that's always true of the gospel, Right? All it takes is for, for one person in the family to get saved and their heart to be changed, and all of a sudden, it starts having a ripple effect on everybody else, right? Because that's the way the Lord works. He changes a heart, and a changed heart leads to a changed life, and a changed life leads to a changed purpose and mission, and we stop living for the things of this world, and we start living for the Lord, and He does a new thing through that person who has put their faith in Him. We start living for his return and for his mission. And we start living like John the Baptist. People who are sent out on mission to turn other people to salvation in Jesus Christ. It's not just about us anymore. It's like, how many can I take with me? Right? Who else can I turn to Jesus? As we live first for his kingdom. And then he ends with this statement. He says, lest I come and strike the land with utter destruction. Almost as if to say, don't get me wrong, the day is still coming. Don't miss that in all the good news and all the grace. And all, the judgment day is still coming. And you need to be ready. And our only chance for life is to repent, to turn to Jesus and be saved. That goes for us, that goes for our family, that goes for our friends, that goes for everyone we meet. 
And so this message is urgent. That we tell everyone, turn. Turn to Jesus. And he will save you. We're all called to live lives that are changed by the gospel. And to help others change and turn to the gospel. To avoid the utter destruction that is coming. God says, turn. Just turn to me. Just turn to me and I will change your heart and I will give you eternal life. I'm right here. Just turn. God is calling us to turn to him and sending us to turn others to him. It doesn't stop with us. It doesn't stop in this place. We don't just come here on Sundays to hear a good message and feel good and go home. We come to be sent out with the message of Jesus Christ so that more can turn to God and be saved. Behold, I am with you. Out of all the things that God could have included in his last moments, in his last words to the Israelites before he goes silent, the last thing he wanted them to know is, behold, I am with you. Friends, we need not ever fear Judgment Day if we have faith in Jesus Christ. There is no fear in that for us because we have been delivered from that. If we will look up to him, if we will remember his word, if we will turn to him and turn to his mission, he will be with us and he will never leave us. His word will be a firm foundation for our lives that we can stand on, that we can build on. And his mission will give us purpose and joy as we follow him. God is with you. Let that be a firm foundation for your life. That's been our theme this entire year. Firm foundation. And it is the Lord. And it is his word. Stand in that promise. Stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, so much, Lord, for your presence. Lord, you do so many things for us. You give us so much, Lord, but the most important thing, the most valuable thing is you, that you are with us, that we are in your presence, God. Thank you for your word that reminds us of that and points us to you. Thank you for assuring us of your love and your commitment, no matter what we're walking through. Thank you for teaching us, for guiding us. Thank you for giving us a call to repentance. Not leaving us stuck in our sin, but saving us from our sin. Thank you for being with us. Help us today, and as we move into this new ministry year, Lord, help us to take your presence to all those around us. Help us to trust in you as our firm foundation and stand for the gospel. It's all in you, Lord. All in your presence. We pray all this in Christ's name.